we are um, in the process of, it's not even a once in a generation, but you know, once in many, many generations transition in our energy system. Um, the likes of which we can, in some sense, not even really imagine. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're really fortunate to have with us Lori Benier, who is the Julie Plant Granger Associate Professor of Energy Economics and Policy at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University where she also serves as Executive Vice Dean. Welcome, Lori. Thanks. Thanks, Rob, for having me. So before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental and energy policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So let, let's go back, to, in fact, to where did you grow up? I grew up in Gillette, Wyoming, which for folks who follow environment and energy policy topics is in the Powder River Basin, so right. it's coal and natural gas country. And was your family engaged in the industry? Nope, they were not. We, we uh, They were both school teachers, so uh-huh. we just ended up there. Interesting. And does that mean you were there for primary school and high school as well? The whole thing, first whole- grade through high school, yep. And then from high school, then you went a long way from there to go to Occidental College. Do I have that right? Yeah. So I was one of the few people who really uh, did not want to go to the University of Wyoming, which was where pretty much everyone went. I wanted to go to the big city, which when you're um, west of the Rockies is Los Angeles. So I um, applied and was accepted to this little school, Occidental College in Los Angeles, and off I went. And what did you study there? I ended up studying double majoring in economics and um, the brand new major at the time, which was environmental studies. But I actually went there to study diplomacy and world affairs. I wanted to do foreign relations and and, um, work for the State Department. But I got there and I uh, took an an intro microeconomics class and loved it, loved, loved, loved it. And then took the intro diplomacy and world affairs class and didn't love it so much. So Mm -hmm. I switched over to econ. So does your professor from that microeconomics course know how what a profound effect he had on the course of environmental economics scholarship? Well, I don't know about that's very flattering, but um, you know, certainly uh he's he's long since retired now, but yes, he we stayed in touch over the years. He was aware of the change that that he made in my life. So you also then, while you're there, you move into economics, but then how did the interest in environment come up while you were at Occidental? Yeah, so same professor um, was teaching a brand new class um, in environmental economics, and I was a sophomore. I was looking for an economics class that only required principles of micro and not intermediate micro. Uh-huh. And this class, because it was part of the new major in environmental studies, only required principles of microeconomics. I literally had no idea what it was, Rob. I was like, yeah. well, whatever, it only requires principles of micro. <laughs> so I, I took it and and it explained pretty much everything that was in the news when I was grew up in Wyoming that I 
Hmm. only vaguely paid attention to and didn't really understand um, controversies over energy extraction, but also reintroducing the wolf into Yellowstone happened while I was there, the let it burn policy in Mm -hmm. the national parks, um, and environmental economics helped me understand and frame all of those. And yeah, that was pretty much it for me. So when you when you went home on school vacations to Gillette, did that what kind of conversations did you engage in with people who were probably I assume your friends from you know high school who yeah. hadn't gone away? Well, like so my parents moved to Arizona in the interim, so I didn't ah, go back to Gillette. Okay. Um, but yeah, I continued to you know um, hang out with those folks from time to time, and and certainly our views on some issues related to oil and gas and climate change differ. But um, I've actually found that to be a helpful framework. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. 50% of the country um, doesn't share necessarily my political views on the world. And having grown up with folks, um, I shared a locker with Amy Enzi, who was the late Senator Enzi's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, I feel like that's been helpful for me in trying to understand other points of view and, and how you know, my training can maybe help form a bridge between people with different political persuasions. So I, I think that's extremely important and potentially, as you suggested, very valuable, particularly at these times now of such incredible political polarization, both within the Congress, but also, as you're suggesting, demographically and geographically in the general population. Agreed. So uh, then from Occidental, you went directly to Yale? I did. At some point in those four years, I realized, well, I was doing research as my work study, um, and uh, both in economics and in environmental science. I actually had a couple of papers that came out of that research, even as an undergraduate, on environmental justice um, and the location of hazardous waste treatment, storage, and disposal facilities in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really liked, I caught the research bug there, too. Um, and I was encouraged to apply for PhD programs, and I um, I got into Yale and Berkeley, and I went to Yale. I, you know, I, and I can't even tell you really a good reason why, um, but I just it was across the country, and I wanted another adventure, so that's what I did. Right. So that's really a change going to New Haven at that point. And now you were there for is it just one year in the program? Do I have I that wrong? I was there for two years. Two years. Yeah, so I left after my second year. I decided uh, I wasn't so sure if I wanted to get a PhD after all, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it was time to leave. So I I took my MA and moved up to the Boston area to work at Apt Associates in their Cambridge office. So that Uh was the next step. And tell me about what did you do at Apt Associates? So I worked in their environment group, um, and at the time, their work was almost exclusively under contract with uh, US EPA. So mm-hmm. I did benefit-cost analysis um, for the office of, what was the time, Office of Pollution Prevention Toxics, OPPT, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Office of Water and the Office of Air and Radiation. Those were our biggest clients. Right. Um, and so that was great, because it took all this like theory that I had learned, and then I actually had to do things right Right. like I had to build um you know supply and demand model in excel or whatever um so uh you know I I felt like that was a really good step for me yeah typically benefit cost analysis is not something which is taught certainly not in a PhD program 
and frequently not for undergraduates, and yet it's a methodology or a set of methodologies that are just the bread and butter of economic consulting. Exactly. So, I mean, I just spent the first, I don't even know how many months, like just reading other um, regulatory impact analyses and going right. through other people's uh-huh. analysis and SAS and in Excel to sort of figure out what I was doing because I had never been taught that stuff. I knew the theory of it, right? But not how yeah. one actually does it. Right, right. And now, so what made you apply, which I assume was the next step, to the PhD program in public policy at Harvard? The first year at APT, I felt like I was just, you know, drinking from a, a fire hose. I was learning mm-hmm. so much. And then um, I think it's fairly common in consulting. You sort of like get pigeonholed, right? And you're going to do a bunch of stuff. And I was doing that same stuff kind of over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it was no longer quite so new and exciting. Um, and I was thinking back to the original motivations I had for getting a PhD. And they, they mostly still applied. I just wanted a more... Um, applied program, less less theory. Yale was very theoretical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started looking around and um, applied uh, to the Kennedy School, where I ended up working with you, but mm-hmm. I also applied to a, um, a variety of ag and resource econ departments. I see. Right, right. Now, uh, I always ask, um, what was your dissertation topic and who was on your committee? So my committee was chaired by this guy you might know, Rob Stavins, mm-hmm. um, and I also had um, Nolan Miller, mm-hmm. uh, who's now at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the business school, and um, Carrie Caglianisi, who's oh, at UPenn, yeah. Yeah. was on my committee. And um, my dissertation focused on um, the effects of regulation on environmental performance at the facility level, and I looked at... Um, what I've called non-traditional environmental regulations, so mm-hmm. information disclosure requirements and management-based regulations, which are regulations that require firms or facilities to engage in some sort of pollution reduction planning. That's the required activity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they don't then actually have to follow through on anything. Everything that they end up doing in response to that planning is, is voluntary. And you did quite a bit of work on that going forward, didn't you? I did, yeah. I mean, for for years after, I was working on both of those. Um, And I still, you know, I'm serving on a a National Academies panel now for the Transportation Research Board on pipeline safety. This is the second one I've done. And they they call me because of the management-based regulation um, work. I see. Because that's the approach that we're taking to a lot of these um, oil and gas safety programs now. Now, for our listeners who don't know, I'll mention that Nolan Miller is an economic theorist, unless I have that that wrong. That's correct, yes. And Kerry Colianese is a uh, dual scholar. He is both a political scientist and has a law degree. And I've kept up with his work, um, mainly through the Internet, uh, at Penn Law School in terms of his regulatory programs. You probably have as well, I suppose, Lori. I do, and I actually still see him uh, quite regularly. We oh, actually great. served on the, the first of these National Academies panels I was on with him. So, mm-hmm. um, so and he's, had, he's invited me to be a collaborator on a couple of his books that he put out through the regulatory policy program at right. Penn. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been in touch, I, uh, regular touch. Yeah, he's that. doing wonderful things there. Mm-hmm. Now, your, your first job out of graduate school was it indeed to the nicholas school it at is. duke this is where i've been yeah yep. like me you're a lifer i'm a lifer 
And so what made you go to the Nicholas School at Duke? What were, what were the big attractions? Besides the fact they made you an offer, of course. Yeah, so, right, that, that is usually a, a big attraction. Um, it was kind of a dream job in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to stay at a place that um, focused on applied research and was interdisciplinary. So I had ideally wanted to go either to another public policy school or a school of the environment. Um, and uh, the Nicholas School at the time was doing it. It was they were doing a joint hire, like two. They were hiring for two positions, mm-hmm. um, broadly in environmental policy. So because the this is not that interesting, but the political science market moves really early. So I actually had mm-hmm. an offer from them um, before the holidays. Right. Um, so that made it hard because it was like the dream job, and I had an offer really early. So. Um, I didn't make. I was. It was exciting, but it also meant I. It was a little bit weird to go do other interviews after that. But right. um, I've been extremely. I've been extremely happy there. Obviously, this is my 18th. I've been there for 18 years now. Um, so you you share sh- something then with your friend and co-author uh, Sheila Olmsted because um, Sheila also went to what I think was her dream job certainly at the time, and also although she actually didn't even go on the full market rather than getting it just getting a job offer early she got a job offer and then didn't really go on the full market in her case it was uh, going to Yale yeah so I t- I've, I've, I've explained this to some of my you know PhD students over the years too like you know the job market often seems very terrifying for folks but it really is a matching process right, right. and yes um, and you only need one good job um, yes. so I can't tell you how many times people will be like this is my dream job and I'm like yeah and, it, and you're their dream candidate actually so yeah. you know the odds of that working out are, are not trivial yeah but it does happen and it's a, it's yeah. a wonderful part of your story and Sheila's story and right. um, actually I'd say my own story because the Harvard Kennedy School for me coming out of the economics department at Harvard was really my dream job uh, at the time. And it's remained so for uh, more than 30 years. So let's turn to your work uh, in the world of environmental economics scholarship. I, I assume that over the these two, nearly two decades, uh, that you've seen some significant changes in the scholarly world of environmental economics since your 2004 PhD degree. Uh, do any of those changes stand out to you? In the broader scholarship, I feel like a lot of those decades were spent um, really diving into the weeds of how to try to get climate policy right from mm-hmm. an economic standpoint. Um, that wasn't a huge a- area of my own research, but that's where I feel like the, the field was. Really mm-hmm. smart people trying to tackle um, issues as they came up, like some of my, my good friends and colleagues who were at Duke at the time, you know, we have price uncertainty if we use a permit system, right? So right. what if we have a permit reserve and we issue permits from that reserve if the price mm-hmm. hits a certain level, right? And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were, you've, your own work and Sheila's work and lots of other people's sort of focusing on as issues keep being brought up mm-hmm. in the political sphere or whatever, sort of doing our best economics to try to address those issues, right? And right, I, I feel right. like the, the positive side of that was tons of brilliant people went to work on that. The downside was things got more and more and more complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we have to have border adjustments. We have to have this, we have to have that, right? It mm-hmm. became far less straightforward to explain to grandma at the Thanksgiving table, like how a cap and trade program would work for carbon dioxide. 
So one of the things that I've noticed validates what you just said, when I think back over the 30 years, um, in terms of the changing focus of environmental economics, is that in the class I teach, which you were a teaching fellow in, I believe, um, in that course, probably back when you were a PhD student, uh, of the 26 class sessions of a 13-week course meeting twice a week, of those 26 sessions, one half of one session was dedicated to climate change policy. And the other half of that one was stratospheric ozone depletion. That was the international or the global class. And now that class has essentially evolved into a course in the economics of climate change and environmental policy. Um, some, sometimes that's been a gradual change, but it's also accelerated over the, the last few years. Let me get back to your research uh, your own research and writing. I know this is asking you like to identify your favorite child, but what's the one publication of yours that you're most proud of? Can I have two favorite children? Take, so in the, take so in two, the, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I only have two real children, so that helps. Um, the In the purely economic space, I think um, the work that I'm most proud of is actually a paper with Sheila mm -hmm. um, looking at the effect of information disclosure on drinking water quality, on yes. the um, on uh, violations of drinking water standards by public water utilities. Um, and that was published back, I think, in 2008 um, in the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management. Um, and, uh, you know, ended up having, I think, a, a fairly outsized impact in terms of getting calls from EPA's inf enforcement office, wanting to understand how they could better use information disclosure as an enforcement mechanism, mm -hmm. um, which I think was, was really interesting. Um, Post-tenure, one of, one of the things that Duke is sort of known for is its interdisciplinarity, and I was involved in a... Um, a community of practice at Duke on rethinking regulation that had faculty from all over the university. And through that, um, I already knew Jonathan Weiner, who I think was on your show just a while ago yes. um, from the law school, but I got to know Ed Ballison, who is a history mm -hmm. professor, and Kim Kravick, who's also at the law school. Um, and through that, we, we were brainstorming different research ideas that resulted in a book project um, called Policy Shock, uh, Understanding Regulatory Response to Crises. Mm -hmm. um, and it looked at a variety of different environmental crises, including um, oil spills and uh, nuclear incidents, as well as financial crises, which is what Ed Ballison studies. Um, and that was a multi-year project across a lot of disciplines with mixed methods, um, that I found just personally very rewarding, mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, I think had has had quite a bit of impact in terms of some of the recommendations that came out of that that book. So what what you've highlighted are situations in which um, the scholarship was significant. You're proud of the scholarship, but partly you're proud of it because it was actually useful in the policy world. So um, something I've noticed, and you have. Uh, is that in the policy world, there's increasing attention, and in the scholarly world as well, to what we previously would have just referred to perhaps as the distributional impacts 
of environmental problems and environmental policies and now are characterized and examined under the labels of environmental justice and just transition. And this includes your own work. Can you say a bit about it? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I said earlier, but the first two papers I had that were published were actually from my undergraduate days and were in environmental justice. Mm -hmm. um, we actually drove around in a vehicle with a giant GPS receiver, because back in the day, you didn't have those on your phone, mm -hmm. to geolocate hazardous waste treatment storage and disposal facilities. So I've been in this for a while, but just not super active. Mm -hmm. My current research um, is looking um, at... Um, the justice impacts of the clean energy transition. So we are um, in the process of, it's not even a once in a generation, but you know, once in many, many generations mm -hmm. transition in our energy system. Um, the likes of which we can't in some sense not even really imagine, but it's gonna involve significant land use changes um, and changes to the way electricity is generated. And a lot of that is exciting from an environmental standpoint because they're lower carbon. But we have this opportunity to do this in a way that extends those benefits uh, more evenly across the population than the fossil fuel-based energy system did mm -hmm. and potentially um, doesn't uh, centralize the costs of, the, of that energy system um, in particular communities in the same way that the fossil fuel uh, energy system did. But we have to do that consciously from the beginning. So one of the things we're looking at is different definitions of what constitutes an environmental justice community. And there are a bunch from states, the mm -hmm. White House is working on this now. And if we use these different definitions, what does that say about um, the concentration of solar, wind, and then in North Carolina in particular, what are known as renewable natural gas from hog mm -hmm. farms and also the wood pellets that are used mm -hmm. and exported to Europe. What does that mean in terms of our understanding of the distributional impacts of that renewable energy? And in terms of just transition, the fact that there will be losers, surely, both in geographic areas and in particular sectors from the clean energy transition, presumably your experience back in Gillette, Wyoming must come to play in your thinking, even if it's in the background of your thinking, I assume it's, as you said earlier, it's affected you. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly one of the issues, of course, is what's going to happen to communities that were heavily dependent mm -hmm. on fossil fuels. And that's, right. you know, that's Gillette. Um, that's also North Dakota. That's West Virginia. There's, yes. you know, there's a whole bunch of these. Um, and, um, so that's one issue that there are likely to be losers in your terms on, on, on this dimension. Um, and what do we do about that? Um, but then also as we increase these other renewable sources, you know, what, do, who's, who gets a seat at the table in terms of discussing what the potential impacts of, of those mm -hmm. things are, mm -hmm. because while they're good for carbon, they're not perfectly great along every environmental dimension, right? There's waste right. associated with them. There's mining yep. associated with them. We need to take that in, in hol holistically from the beginning. Now, speaking of that, outside of academia, um, you mentioned before uh, your service on panels of the National Academies, and you've worked on safety issues surrounding offshore oil and gas development and extraction. 
that's now a, a an increasingly important topic because of the war in Ukraine and in some cases pushes for uh, increased oil and gas development in places such as the United States. Um, Are there any particular insights, in particular, really, any surprises that arose for you from your work at the National Academies panels? I don't I don't think there were surprises, except for that we kind of keep answering the same question over and over again. So Congress or agencies, whoever's commissioning these these reports always wants there to be a silver bullet. Right. They want one thing Mm -hmm. we can do that will ensure that we never have another Deepwater Horizon or that we don't have yeah. pipeline explosions, right? right. And mm-hmm. in these, these high-risk industries, there just isn't such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need a, a series of both safety systems and safety processes that are tied to a safety culture, only some of which regulation can actually really dictate. Um, and that's a hard pill to swallow, right? Because on the one hand, as you pointed out, um, we're still dependent on these industries in many ways, and that dependence might increase, at least in the short term, mm-hmm. um, due to, to issues going on in, in Russia and the Ukraine. Um, but we don't like the downsides of them. Uh, and whenever anything bad happens, um, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about, about why regulation didn't stop that from happening. Um, and trying to get people to understand that, you know, inspection regimes can only go so far you're only out on the rig once a year right, right. that the other 364 days a year there has to be a safety culture there has to be there has to be processes in place that reward people for valuing for valuing safety um, and that's a harder thing and there's a huge role for industry in that which also you know gets some folks in the environmental community gets their their backs up because they Mm -hmm. feel like industry has too much say over what these regulatory processes should be but they also have the expertise and the experience to actually make them happen so so more broadly um what's your assessment of the current u.s administration's environmental and energy policy either domestically or internationally whatever you'd like to comment on briefly very briefly so you know up until Biden, I think the U.S. through through multiple different presidencies and different um, different parties had sort of an all of the above energy platform. And one of the mm-hmm. things that we were curious about with the Biden administration was whether there was going to be a marked deviation from that. Mm-hmm. And I think initially it looked like there was going to be, um, and you know, a, a stronger focus on climate change and decarbonization, but geopolitics has a way of messing up these plans. And I think we're sort of back to and all of the above sort of approach, at least in the medium term, um, which creates some political issues, of course, for President Biden with the with the progressive side of his of his party. Um, but you know, trying to to balance all of these competing values, um, people don't like that the price of gas, I'm told, is you know for something um, in North Carolina and six something in California. Yeah. Um, they want gasoline to be less expensive. They want electricity to be less expensive. And they also want decarbonization. And by the way, we don't like nuclear, right? So, right. you know, um, 
it's really a challenge and I, I think realistically that all of the above strategy that has a, that has a plan for a transition but without promises of a miraculously rapid transition which the grid cannot accommodate mm-hmm. um, that that's where we're going to be at but it's not it's not politically appealing to any party to say that right so that's very interesting and I take from what you just said that it's not just that it may be the politically feasible route but that economically that might be a sensible route or did I misunderstand Yeah no what economically you said? it's a sensible route and technologically it's a feasible yes. route we can't yeah. I mean you know the people who do energy technology at the Nicholas School will tell you we can't transfer the grid can't absorb that much renewables that quickly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there is going to be a longer pathway and i mean as an economist i wish we could go back to the 90s and get it get it right there what we were saying in the 90s was slow and steady right put the yeah. carbon price in now we'll have lots of time to adjust we didn't do it and so now things seem more urgent but there's still both from an economic and a, and a technical feasibility standpoint, it's going to be a longer pathway. So although it would be des- wonderful if we could, you know, reinvent history and go back, <laughs> I want to uh, bring things to a close by asking you about the going forward part sure. of the story. In, in particular, um, something that it seems to me is just really a, a quite dramatic change Uh, were these youth movements of climate activism that we saw become quite prominent in 2019, then a bit of a hiatus because of the pandemic in 2020, and then back again in 2021, such as in Glasgow at the annual climate talks. So I'd like to know what's your reaction to these youth movements of climate activism um, I know it's most prominently Greta Thunberg, but but it also is much broader among students and young people in general. Yeah, I live this. I live this every day um, in my my role as executive vice dean at the Nicholas School because the students they have changed since I, I got there in '04. Mm-hmm. They are far mm-hmm. more activist oriented. Um, I think they were always passionate about the environment, but the way in which they um, express that passion. Um, and the expectations they have uh, for change and their relationship with what they view as power hierarchies is completely different. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes me feel old, Rob. I mean, I feel like I'm the old person who's like, back in the day, we solved problems. (laughs) Um, You know, but uh, it's it's here to stay. It's required adjustments on all of our parts and, and trying to help harness that passion and mm-hmm. that um, creativity, uh, while also helping to educate them that, you know, there are these constraints in the world that are real, right? And learning to operate within those constraints might actually be beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a challenge and we'll see what happens. There's, there's almost no trust in government to make progress. Um, a lot of traditional institutions they don't have much trust in. Interestingly, amongst our students, there's a lot more trust in the private sector to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just it's mm. transformative, and um, and I, I often I it often makes me feel like the old person. Well, if it makes you feel like the old person, it makes me feel like the older person. <laughs> so listen, thank you very much, Lori, for taking time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
So our guest today has been Lori Benier, who is the Julie Plant Granger Associate Professor of Energy Economics and Policy at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.